Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 2.23, Quo Waranto. This week, we are going to dive right back into where we left off last time. The effect of the turmoil that we discussed last time, chiefly the published plot and the accompanying exclusion crisis, would prove to have a wide range of effects in England, as well as across the Atlantic and New England. The most immediate effect of these two crises is that attention was drawn away from the issues in New England, while Charles II dealt with a much more immediate risk to his authority much closer to home. The twin affairs had created a dangerous amount of dissension in England as political parties emerged in Parliament. The Whigs, the group that was promoting the exclusion of Charles II, was led by Lord Shaftesbury. They were opposed by the Tories, who remained loyal to Charles II and opposed such drastic measures. For Charles II, the risk posed by the exclusion crisis was nothing short of a direct threat to his rule. Parliament could not be allowed to rewrite the rules of succession, something that the king had invested interest in. The repeated attempts by the Whigs to find ways to exclude James from the crown would not only have removed James from the line of succession, but it was a dangerous risk to the personal power of Charles II, who vehemently opposed any such action. While initially the events of 1679 through 1681 would prove to be something of a stroke of luck for the New England colonists, who were undoubtedly watching the events back in England with bated breath, the long-term consequences are going to prove to be considerably more dire. Following the events of 1678, the initial attempt to reassert royal authority in Massachusetts got moving. Arriving in 1679, Edward Randolph returned to New England as a customs collector. It was lost on absolutely nobody that Randolph, just a few years earlier, had been both the king's messenger and spy. Despite him now having a new role within the colony, everybody also realized that he was going to be taking notes and reporting their actions back to London. Shortly after the arrival of Randolph, New England itself would undergo something of a political shakeup. Governor Leverett died unexpectedly in his sleep. Leverett was a staunch defender of the independence of Massachusetts. He had been the governor during King Philip's War and was not somebody to back away from a fight. It had been Leverett who had been so defiant in the face of Randolph the previous time he had been in New England. The defiant attitude and the unwavering support for Massachusetts independence meant that politically Leverett stood as a perceived bulwark against the machinations of the king, attempting to wrestle away what Leverett viewed as their rights. Leverett stood at the very center of colonial politics in Massachusetts, and unquestionably power flowed through him. However, with his death it was Simon Bradstreet, who was positioned to take command of the highest seat in Massachusetts. The problem is that Bradstreet was not Leverett. A moderate by nature, there was widespread fears that Bradstreet would be far more compromising in his position, something that the Massachusetts elites both feared and could hardly afford. This fear would lead directly to a shift in power in New England from the governor back to the elite-driven general court. This brings us back to an important point that we had touched on in our last episode. Massachusetts did not have the benefit from complete political hegemony. There are absolutely people who did not support the then-existing government in Massachusetts. This dissent itself, however, was varied, and there is hardly a single unified front that found itself opposed to the Massachusetts government. Dissent ranged from opposition to the religious status of the colony, those who supported the Anglican Church did actually exist in Massachusetts, to the opposition to the often arbitrary rule of the general court. More pragmatically, there was a wave of opposition who simply thought that challenging the king's rule was dangerous 
and was something that probably was going to come back to bite the colony in the future. Randolph would dub these two groups the Faction and the Moderates. The Faction was made up of the colonial elites, those who sat in the general court, the group that was attempting to reassert and maintain the independence of Massachusetts. The Moderates were made up of everybody else, which included those who were openly opposed to the Faction, as well as those who would at least be open to the idea of royal intervention. Now, I do want to make a note on the terms here that we are using. It is important to understand that the terms faction and moderates are misleading in their very nature. First, it had the problem of describing what appears to be two unified groups similar to the emerging political parties in England. As I just mentioned a moment ago, however, the moderates lack the unanimity that Randolph would have liked to have had exist. The second problem is that with the terms that Randolph used, it would make one believe that the ruling elite was simply a sizable minority. The faction doesn't invoke feelings that this is a majority group and leads to the tendency to think that they were indeed just a faction inside of the larger population. This, however, is incorrect. The faction was the majority political group inside of Massachusetts. It was the moderates who were the minority inside of the colony, not the faction. It is also worth noting that the moderates were not necessarily a pro-crown party either. While the moderates may not have agreed with the members of the faction, neither were they sitting around dreaming of a strong royal intervention. The moderates were willing to compromise with the crown, and in certain aspects they may welcome some level of intervention. However, this is not some wide-ranging, unquestioned support for Charles II. That third group did exist within the colony, led primarily by Joseph Dudley, the son of John Winthrop's main competitor, Thomas Dudley. This was a far smaller group than either of the other two and would largely be swept aside by the two larger groups, much to the dismay of the Crown and Edward Randolph. Initially, at least, the colonists in Massachusetts did get with the program and at least tried to do better. This is likely for a couple of reasons. However, the primary reason is that the king was talking seriously about pushing a quo warranto against the colony. A quo warranto is effectively a method whereby the king could demand that the Massachusetts Bay Colony be required to prove their charter is lawful. In other words, if one were seeking a method to disband a charter, a writ of quo warranto would be the method which they would employ. With these threats now openly flying around, the general court in Massachusetts initially decided that pushing their luck was not going to be worth the risk. Do recall that when the colony decided to pool, the whole, you can't fire me, I quit, when they went ahead and codified the much-hated Navigation Acts, for Massachusetts, it was a way to maintain independence while hopefully mollifying the inclinations of the crown and moving forward with a more dramatic form of intervention. While the Massachusetts Bay Company was nominally on board with the plan, they were still proving to be a difficult thorn in the side of London. In addition to the new regulations set out in 1678, there was a requirement that the colony send two agents. By the time that 1680 rolled around, Massachusetts was still stalling on this front. Charles II, now under political assault at home, had little patience to deal with the colony and demanded in no unclear terms that they needed to send agents immediately. Wanting to avoid the issue of 1678, the king was also clear that these agents needed to have the ability to answer for the colony. Simply declining because they would need to speak with the general court was not going to cut it. Despite this letter, Massachusetts did a good job with stalling some more, likely with the help of ongoing distractions from the exclusion crisis. 
Finally, in 1682, they got around to sending their agents back to London. The agents they chose for this mission were Joseph Dudley and John Richards. Let's go back for a moment to our previous episode and review what we know, because in just a moment here, all of these signs are suddenly going to intersect with one another. Throughout the course of the Popish plot and into the exclusion crisis, early political parties had emerged in England, much to the chagrin of Charles II. The Whigs supported exclusion of Charles II's brother James, then the Duke of York, from the line of succession. The Tories remained loyal to the king and didn't deviate from royal prerogative on the matter. In 1681, the king received a large loan from Louis XIV of France, relieving him of the need of having a parliament at all, since the main purpose of parliament is to levy taxes and pay for all of those things that the king wanted to do. With the loan from France, however, Charles II didn't need parliament anymore, and he went ahead and disbanded them. He would never call another parliament during his reign. This means that when Dudley and Richards arrived, they were walking into a political environment that was ultimately much more hostile towards them than the one that Strawden and Bulkley had left four years earlier. In 1678, the king's authority wasn't really being questioned by anybody, so having a troublesome colony an ocean away was more of an annoyance than it was a national catastrophe. However, in the last four years, Charles II had come under increasing pressure and attacks from political opponents. An overtly independent colony was no longer an annoyance, but it was something threatening that could undermine his now challenged authority. Initially, at least, New England did make some overtures towards compliance. England had sent Randolph over in 1678, and the colonists figured that they probably needed to make some effort. This leads to the previously discussed codification of the Navigation Acts by the General Court. However, by the time that 1682 had rolled around, Massachusetts had fallen back into its old ways. With England dealing with turmoil internally, the general court in Massachusetts felt safe that England did not have the time to deal with them. However, with fallout from the Popish plot and exclusion crisis running high in England, the landscape had suddenly changed. Whereas in 1678, Charles II was facing challenges from Massachusetts, now he was facing challenges everywhere from all corners of his empire. The effect that this leads to is that Charles II was now in a position where he had to reassert royal authority over the entire country, not just in a single colony across the Atlantic. Without much surprise, the biggest challenge to Charles came from the new political party who was opposing him during the exclusion crisis, the Whigs. In Massachusetts, the faction were largely in support of the Whigs. They were so much in favor, in fact, that Randolph suggested to the king the Whigs and the faction were indeed working together against the crown. When, despite Charles II's best efforts, the Earl of Shaftesbury was not indicted by a grand jury for treason, it did little to improve the outlook for the king. In fact, by this point, Charles II was fed up and knew it was time to move against his detractors. While Massachusetts continued on in their now predictably defiant fashion, likely relying on the fact that the king would ultimately become distracted by another internal crisis, their time was about to run out. In 1682, the king finally took action. He filed a writ of quo warranto against the Massachusetts Bay Colony, once again sending Edward Randolph across the ocean to break the news. Arriving back in the colony yet again in the fall of 1683, Randolph brought news to the general court and informed them that as of right now, the quo warranto had simply been filed. If the colony failed to begin obeying the king and following his laws, 
the king would then be forced to press forward and attack the very charter of the colony. This left the general court with a serious problem that they were going to have to decide. Chiefly, if they were prepared or willing to submit to the king's authority, or if they were going to fight to maintain their independence. The debates that were waged in Boston over these issues were heated. On the one hand, members in the faction realized that they were now playing a very dangerous game and recognized the changing political dynamics in London likely meant that they did understand that the king was serious this time. However, always keep in mind that in Massachusetts, the charter was more than just a governing document. It was seen by the members of the faction, the religious elites in the colony, as something more spiritual in nature. Those in the Puritan faction viewed Massachusetts in the same way that John Winthrop did 50 years before. The colony was the city on the hill. Therefore, the members of the faction viewed the role of the government as not just being practical in governance, but as also being the method whereby they are protecting the souls of the citizens in that colony. Spirituality was still incredibly core to the colonists in Massachusetts. It is at the very center of everything they did every decision they made. Therefore, simply acquiescing to the demands of the king was far more than a political decision. It was a spiritual decision. This isn't the first time that we have seen Massachusetts looking at these broader events as being a test from God. Indeed, the colonists already believed that the events of King Philip's war had been a result of a displeased God, because the colony had become lax in their practices. The voice of dissent is being led largely by the colony's de facto spiritual leader, Increase Mather. Mather was born in Massachusetts in 1639. It was largely his descriptions during King Philip's War that would get Mather well-known throughout the colony. By the time we get into the late 1670s, Mather had become one of the leading voices in the faction in regards to the religious direction of the colony. Today, Mather is best known for his role in the witchcraft trials that are going to happen in 1692 Salem. However, he was far more important than that and was involved in many, many different aspects of colonial government. His son, Cotton Mather, will also go on to become an important spiritual leader in Massachusetts and is going to become a frequent correspondent with a much younger Benjamin Franklin. Mather strongly urged the general court not abandon their position, as doing so is going to be an affront to God. In one of the key writings on the issue, Mather wrote that, For the government of Massachusetts to consent unto proposals or alterations, called regulations, which will be destructive to the interest of religion and of Christ's kingdom in the colony, cannot be done without sin and great offense to the majesty of heaven. The work then dives more into the pragmatic reasons of government as well, stating that by agreeing the colony would be gaining nothing, therefore it makes little sense to agree. In other words, if the option is submission to the demands of the king or facing dissolution of their charter, there is little difference within the colony. In both situations, they end up in practically the same place. Therefore, what is the benefit of submission to royal demands? These political battles continued in the colony throughout the early months of 1684 and on into the spring. When the spring elections rolled around, it was the faction that came out on top and the moderates who were soundly defeated. Despite attempts by the moderates, namely Joseph Dudley, to foster some kind of submission to royal authority to stop the Quo Waranto, the colony had once again established that the faction was not merely that, a faction, but rather they remained the majority voice in the colony. The message was loud and clear. The Massachusetts Bay Colony was not going to risk their immortal souls 
for anybody. They were not going to submit to the king's demands, regardless of the consequences. With the faction firmly in charge of Massachusetts politics, the colonists dug in their heels and made clear that they were not going to waver from their decision. It is impossible for us to fully know what was going through their heads at this point, but one must wonder if the colonists thought that they were going to somehow escape this as well. After all, the colony had survived the royal inspectors of 1664. Then, they had battled through the entire period of the 1670s and managed to come out on the other side. Maybe this was just another bump in the road, another challenge that they had to pass through. Now, getting rid of the Massachusetts Bay Company was not going to be as easy as the king decreeing it, and the matter just simply being resolved. The company was a private corporation and required complex legal maneuvers to take care of. Even if the outcome was pretty much a predetermined fact, the king lacked the power to make it unilaterally. He needed to rely upon the court system. At least the appearance of due process was going to need to be upheld. Briefly, it actually looked as though the colony had just found a rather convenient loophole. Specifically, the writ of Quo Waranto had expired. Just as legal pleadings today carry with them due dates and statutes of limitations, so was the case in the 1680s. Things were further slowed down over the jurisdictional questions about who could even serve notice on the Massachusetts colony. Did the sheriff have the power to serve notice on the colony? Eventually, however, a procedure was decided upon and the case proceeded forward. It is here that we run into a strange reaction, legally speaking, by the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The colony, instead of doing the most basic legal maneuvers, namely sending an answer to the pleadings against them, decided instead to appeal directly to Charles II. In the plea to him, they point out that they didn't have any problems with him directly, but they were acting out of religious conviction they included portions about the hardships that they had faced. Why the colony failed to file any kind of an answer to the proceedings against them is something that I could not find a mention of anywhere. It is certainly an unusual course of action, as it is virtually assured that a default judgment would be entered against them. If you don't answer the charges being levied against you, it is pretty unlikely that you're going to prevail. Appealing to the king is nice and all, but it is not going to stop the legal proceedings already underway. My best guess, and this is absolutely my guess here, is that the colony was attempting to delegitimize the entire procedure. In other words, they were saying that the entire thing is a farce anyway. We are not even going to entertain you with an answer. The colony likely knew the end result was already essentially predetermined, and that the entire exercise they were going through now was nothing more than lip service to due process. The colonists may have viewed their letter to the king, espousing their hardships, as having been a way where they would have expressed their position on the matter without having to give legitimacy to the process. Regardless of the logic of the colony to not submit an answer directly to the court deciding their fate, the decision was made, and on October 23, 1684, the charter of the Massachusetts Bay Company was dissolved. The charter of the colony had been in varying degrees of danger for nearly 20 years at this point. The strength of the charter came largely from that faithful omission that occurred way back during the drafting that allowed the Massachusetts Bay Company to set its headquarters in the colony itself. This decision allowed the colony to act independently from its very first moments. It is this independence that would become deeply ingrained in the psyche of the colony and in New England at large. As we are going to see in the weeks to come, 
this independent streak in the colony is not something that is going to die just because the charter had been disbanded. What follows after the dissolution of the charter is a period of confusion for the colony. The charter is gone. However, what emerges is a void rather than a coherent plan to move forward. Immediately following the revocation of the charter, what followed was a general sense of confusion throughout the entire government. Nobody was sure what the future was going to bring. All they knew is that the charter was no more and sweeping changes would likely be coming their way, though nobody at this point had any clue as to what those were going to resemble. The entire point of the Quo Waranto in the first place was to get the colony to willingly give up the charter and accept the sweeping changes in the interest of keeping the harmony. The Crown's entire hope was that the compromises presented in the Quo Waranto were a warning and that they would have been enough to get the faction to back down and accept royal prerogative. However, with the colony rejecting this and the charter being completely revoked, those in the general court must have anticipated sweeping changes coming to their way of life. For the members of the faction, they spent much of the period over the winter of 1684 and 85 wondering what the new government would look like and hoping that God would keep them from falling into evil hands. Bear in mind that for the settled government in Massachusetts, everything was viewed through a lens of religion. Why did King Philip's war happen the way it did? That was because of a displeased God who was upset at how lax the colony had become in its practice. Sure enough, the events going on at that moment were viewed in the same way, that this was some kind of a punishment and that they had to pay a price to appease an angry god. This is going to be a big deal in the coming decades as these events are going to help fuel religious events moving into the 1700s. As rumors swirled in the colonies, Charles II was already busy at work with his council to devise a new government in Massachusetts. Charles II had spent the last several years reasserting his power over England following the popish plots and the subsequent exclusion crisis. While he had successfully gotten ahead of his rivals, he now had to come up with a workable solution in Massachusetts. Geographically separated by an ocean, this meant that any solution he came up with was going to need to be something that could be realistically implemented from afar. However, with Charles II becoming increasingly reactionary during the years after the exclusion crisis, this was a difficult line for him to tow. In England, Charles II had largely been successful in this endeavor. One of the things that Charles recognized was the need for the consolidation of power. Consolidating power meant that more of the population would be under a single leader. In the current structure, having multiple colonies in New England made a single unified message far more difficult to convey. Should New England, however, become a single unified colony under a single unified governing structure, it would be far easier to administer the region according to the king's wishes. The decision was therefore made that Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine would become a single colony known as the Dominion of New England. A year later, Plymouth, Rhode Island, and Connecticut were added to the Dominion, hence fully consolidating power in New England. While they sorted out the rest of the details, a temporary president and council were put into place. With things coming together nicely for Charles II throughout that winter, he will end up doing the one thing that could seriously complicate everything. On February 2nd, Charles became seriously ill. Four days later, on February 6, 1685, Charles II died. With his death, his brother, the Duke of York, became James II as he ascended to the crown. To say that this was an unwelcome development would be an understatement. In England, people continued to fear that James was plotting some massive Catholic takeover. 
Remember that we are only a few years past the exclusion crisis, which the entire goal of was to keep the Catholic James away from power. Back in New England, the Puritans were about as thrilled by this development as the Whigs were back in London. As devout Puritans and hence Calvinists, the idea of having a Catholic king brought them fear from religious persecution on par with the days of William Laud. Religious concerns aside, this also had a major impact on the kind of government that was being formed in the Dominion of New England. James II, if you'll recall, had been the proprietor of the New York colony. Now, if you'll also recall, the colonists in New York had been denied an assembly, something that they were never thrilled about. The result of this is the New York Charter of Liberties, which they presented to James in 1683. During the fall of 1684, James did agree, reluctantly, to sign the charter. However, we are in an era where sometimes mail travels slowly, which means that the charter never actually made it back to New York. This is because before it could be delivered, Charles II died and James became the king. Knowing that James II had been involved in the colonial game for years, it also meant that he had a good practical framework for the government that would work in the Dominion of New England. Specifically, he had the framework of what to that point had been installed in New York. On March 3rd, 1685, James II met with his privy council to decide the matter. During these meetings, he declared that New England would be given the same rights as New York. At the same meeting, James II converted New York into a royal colony. In time, New York itself would also join the Dominion of New England. However, that will not come up until the spring of 1688. Meanwhile, in New York, they reeled under the sudden realization that their hard-fought victory over the Charter of Liberties had been lost. Despite what they initially thought to be a victory, they found themselves trying to rapidly adjust to the new reality. New York would continue to be a government that saw their rule as arbitrary, something that they had long endured and thought that they had conquered. In New England, a colony that so prided itself on their independence, changing to a government that was so arbitrary in practice was an exceptionally bitter pill to swallow. On the ground in Massachusetts, it took until May of 1686 for the new charter to arrive. The new charter named Joseph Dudley as the temporary leader of the new dominion. Dudley had previously been a moderate, and if nothing else, he was at least from the colony, something that must have been a good sign, despite all of the other dark omens. As a moderate, Dudley was going to fly in direct opposition to the former faction leadership in Massachusetts. Dudley would also rule over a far larger area, as New Hampshire and Maine were now part of the Dominion of New England. And while some relief must have been felt that the first governor, temporary as though he was, was from Massachusetts, the loss of the assembly was a devastating blow. The loss of the assembly not only marked the end of meaningful representative government, but it marked the purge of the faction from the government. From the time that John Winthrop and company arrived in Massachusetts, the colony had been seen as a religious sanctuary. Sure, they had not lived up to the city on the hill that Winthrop waxed poetically about, but they were still a colony built upon strong religious foundations. Now, however, those men who maintained that status quo were purged from the government overnight. Despite the election victory just a year earlier, the faction was now thoroughly defeated. During the final meeting of the general court, there was little fanfare over what was about to happen. Though the representatives were in a depressed mood, several of them with tears in their eyes, no final stand was made. The general court simply adjourned, defeated. Next time. 
we are going to pick up with those early years in the Dominion of New England and see how the government functioned. Until then, I hope you are all staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you all back here in two weeks' time to continue our journey through the Dominion of New England. <laughs>